I'd like to greet you in the pattern given to us in the New Testament. To those of you who are elect, exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Or, the elder and the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Or the greeting of 2 John 1.13, the children of your elect sister greet you. Or Paul, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. First Peter 5.13, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. And the point I'm trying to make is this. Everybody who's going to be biblically faithful will have a doctrine of predestination and election. Why? They are biblical terms. Now, the discussion is over what they mean. But unlike some other theological constructs, such as the word Trinity, which does not occur in the Bible, we think the truths that it summarizes are taught there, when you're talking about election and predestination, you are talking about patently biblical terminology. And what I find so striking is how comfortable Peter, Paul, John, James are in using that terminology, not as a theological discussion, but just as a way of greeting other Christians. It indicates that the first century church not only was aware of this, but was comfortable with this. It's, it's a far distance from where we are today where these topics are considered controversial, divisive. And so we're going to study this, and if you're wondering why study this, it's because the Bible has so much to say on it. And as we've been going through Luke, we've seen how there are things that Jesus says and Jesus does that, frankly, demand looking into this. He says to his disciples, blessed are your ears, for it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, it is in parables that seeing they may not see. What do you mean, Jesus? You're, you're giving some people the ability to see and you're hiding from others? Exactly. And you can go back to Luke 8 and our message on God's sovereign purpose and parables and you can listen to that as you grapple through that. So I want to take our time this morning. Last week we looked at the bigger picture of God's sovereignty, his relationship to everything on all events that happen. And we, the big point to walk away from last week was this. As, as counterintuitive and I do not believe it's contradictory, but as counterintuitive as it is, the Bible repeatedly, again and again and again, insists that human beings make real, free, unconstrained, uncoerced choices that really have consequence, that are morally significant, for which they will be judged, and God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including human decisions and actions. And we saw Joseph say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And we just say, okay, there's two people meaning something in this act. We see Paul in Philippians 2 insists that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Well, because it's God who's working in you both to will and to do. So is it me or is it God? Yes. And so we just submit our minds to the Scripture. The point is this, and this is the point, the big point to get away from last week is this. 
Just because we've established one actor in an event, whether it's the human actor or the divine actor, an agent, just because we've assigned causality to the man or to God does not mean then the other is inactive because that's our knee-jerk reaction. And so when I discuss the issues of election predestination, my my friends who disagree with me on this will go to those passages where people are called upon to make a choice. Choose this day you will serve. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And they say, see, it's up to man. I say, absolutely, people have to believe. But but if if you were with me last week, that by no means nullifies or means God isn't decisive. Likewise, people will hear statements, and you'll see statements this morning about God's sovereignty over salvation. And the knee-jerk reaction is, well, then are we all puppets? Are we all robots? No, of course not. Because the whole point of last week, if you get anything, is this. God's absolute sovereignty in a mysterious way that I don't understand, but I see the scriptures again and again laying out as true, does in no means compromise man's moral responsibility and man's freedom of decision that he's not coerced, his arm isn't twisted behind his back. He does what he wants. Okay. So with that, then let's look at the biblical teaching on election and predestination. We'll look at it in two points, and I'll make one further shameless plug. Our first point on man's radical corruption and moral slavery, there are two messages given on this topic. One back in January 4th, 2015, on the total depravity of man and original sin. Um, that's a much fuller treatment on this topic. And then from this past summer, um, the, in Luke 8.10, God's sovereign purpose in parables, that I, I think if you're wrestling with this first half of the message, there's more teaching on that that's fuller, goes into more depth. But with that said... We're going to mostly move around Romans. I think I'm going to ask you to look at maybe three other passages other than passages in Romans, but I'll try to keep you in Romans. Let's begin. And the reason we have to start at man's nature is because depending on where you start on this topic, you're going to come to very different conclusions. If you start with the basically decent people and the capricious God who chooses some and tells others to go to hell, literally, you get a very different picture. And the Bible, when it comes at this issue, starts with the state of man and the gracious God who's patient and forbearing and puts up and puts up and puts up and endures so much abuse. So I want to start with with mankind's position and move towards God in this. So here's the first point, the depravity of man. And that is this, natural man is born entirely corrupted by sin. Let me clarify. I am not saying that natural man is as wicked as he can be. He is not utterly depraved. But he is totally depraved in extent. And the point is this. There is no, biblically, there is no remaining area of man, physically, spiritual, mental, untainted, uncontaminated by sin. I'll use this analogy. If I take a white t-shirt and a paint bucket, and I fill it with water, pour some blue dye in it, and I stick the, the T-shirt in, and I you know, shake it around. How much of that T-shirt, when I pull it out, will be white? Now, we could make and imagine darker and darker and darker shades of blue. The point is, there is nothing that is white left. There is nothing that is unstained. And so when the Bible speaks of our, and I speak of our total depravity, what we're insisting is there's not some little corner of natural man that's unaffected, that's still good, It's still righteous. Well, don't take my word for it. Let's dive in and look at some scripture. Here's the first point. Men sin because they are sinners. Men sin because they are sinners. And you say, what are you getting at with that? It's cause and effect. 
We bear the fruit of sin because we come into this world by nature sinful. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. So in Psalm 51, verse 5, famously, David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. As a zygote, in my mother's belly, I was a sinner. The proof of that is that zygotes can die. And if you turn to Romans 5, you'll see Paul say that death only spreads through sin. This is probably the clearest passage on the notion of original sin, our guilt in Adam, and I do not have time to unpack all of that right now. I'll point you to that message, but I just want to show you that Paul insists on that, that connection. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death can only spread to sinners. Jesus could even only die on the cross because he took our sin upon himself. Death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning who is not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment followed one man's trespass, brought condemnation. But the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one, of one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all. For as by the one man's disobedience, get this, the many were made sinners. In Adam, you and I were made sinners. We came into the world as sinners, and then we act out that nature and we sin. It is not the other way around. We do not come into this world neutral, innocent, and then we sin, we come in, conceived in iniquity, David says, sinful in Adam, and then we act on our natures. That's an important point to make. Men sin because they're sinners. Consequently, because that is our nature, and I'll turn to Romans 3, all of their desires are evil continuously. This is, of course, the reason why God brought the flood upon the earth. In Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But then we read after the flood, Genesis 8-21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so it, the problem has not been removed because of the flood. And Paul summarizes the, the closing argument in Romans 3 of his condemnation of all men, having shut every door of escape so that every mouth is stopped so that people will understand the only way that they can stand before God is in Jesus Christ. There is no other avenue. There is no other route. He writes this, verse 9, What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, 
No, not one. To which I think most of us, yeah, amen, amen. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's going to put a damper on your seeker service. That's what it says. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You imagine if there was still some area of good left in people, they'd occasionally be doing good. But no one does good, not even one. And then Paul moves to the totality and extent of corruption. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. So throat, tongues. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of bitterness and curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They've gone from head to toe now. In their path are misery and ruin, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's Paul's summary statement of man. Totally corrupt. Every inch and aspect of our being affected by sin. No, we're not as evil as we could be. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good, no, not one. There is none who seek for God. That's the point. So that's the depravity of man, which then results in inability. Inability. Natural man, therefore, will never want to choose to come to Christ. And the reason this point is important to make is when we look at, and we'll look at in a minute, some passages that speak of man's inability You've got to understand, it is not an externally imposed inability. It's not as though God has made some invisible glass wall that stops people. Rather, the inability is due to ourselves, our own limitations, and our own nature. Okay, let's just follow the argument here. Turn, turn to John 3. Keep your thumb in Romans, because we'll come back. But turn to John 3. This is one of the passages I do want you to turn to and look at. John 3. And... And that is this, our desires always govern our choices. You are free to do what you want, but you will always act upon your greatest desire in the moment. Even if someone were to hold you up at gunpoint, whether you choose to resist or whether you choose to hand over your wallet, will come down to whether you would rather take your chances with that person or rather give up your money. You will act upon your greatest desire in any given moment. That's what it means, in fact, to be free, to be able to do what you want. And in John 3, what we love and what we desire is directly linked to our response to Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, picked up in verse 19. This is the summary statement of the encounter with Nicodemus. This is the judgment, or this is the conclusion. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. To what end? With what consequence? How does their love of darkness affect what they do? People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things... Now just pause. We've just seen in Romans 3. How many people do wicked things? That would be all of humanity, right? So we could just plug in everyone. For everyone who does wicked things, which is to say everyone, hates the light and does not come to the light. We just cut the middleman out. Everyone doesn't come to the light because everyone hates the light. 
their action, their decision of not coming to the light is predicated on, built upon, founded upon their hatred of light. Because they get to do what they want, they don't want light. Because they are free to do what they want, they will never come. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Our desires always govern all of our choices. You see, what's, what's ironic is when the Bible speaks of man's inability, it lays that as the highest proof and the highest charge of our guilt. As if to say, look how corrupt these people are. They want nothing to do with me. And yet we are tempted to use that precisely as the excuse to let man off the hook. Well, how can God hold them accountable if they, aren't, if they can't come? And again, we talked about that back in Luke 8 with the sovereign purpose of parables and how there's a sense in which our slavery frequently is our guilt, establishes our guilt, precisely because someone has given themselves to alcohol or pornography again and again for years, that they're now a slave, is the proof of how bad it is, the proof of how corrupt they are. And because we love the darkness so much, we do not come to the light. Understand, that is why it is not... Externally imposed upon us, it is precisely because of what we love, what we cherish, what we desire, what we want, what we prize and treasure, and our desires govern all of our choices. You see, we are free to do what we want, but we're not free to want what you want. Or to put it another way, point two, we are not free to love what we do not love. We are not free to love what we do not love. Now, frequently when I'm talking through this, people insist love is a choice. And I fully grant there are aspects of love and applications of love that do involve choice because love is patient. You can choose to be patient. But I submit to you that any one of you as a child did not choose to love your child. You couldn't help it when you held that newborn in your arms. Right? And if people know the experience of, I can't help but love this person. In all of our experience, we get that. Think about your tastes in, in food and music, and the food you most love, and think of the food you most hate and despise. For me, it would be sauerkraut. Just, I am not free to use my will to start loving sauerkraut in this moment. The most I could hope for is to teach myself through trial and time, to like sauerkraut. But I'll give you an even simpler option. Every one of us loves the praise of man. Every one of us loves to be told we've done a good job. I challenge you right now to use your will and stop loving that. We are helpless. Now, I can hope God will, will change me and conform me, and I can pray against it, and I can confess it, and I can, I can recognize it, but I wish I could stop loving the praise of man can't do it. You're free to do what you want, but you are not free to arrange your desires how you see fit. You're not, it, sanctification would be so simple. You know, I'll just stop loving sin and start loving God. Done. But again and again, my desires pull me away, and I realize that I can do what I want, but I cannot want what I want. You cannot love what you do not love. And this is the, what the Bible means when it speaks of slavery to sin. In Romans 6, pick it up in verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? 
by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. What's Paul saying? He's saying that if you give yourself to sin, holy, you give yourself to that, you'll become a slave and you will love your master. You will love your slavery. And we encounter this with people steeped in drug addiction, alcohol addiction. They can see the consequences, but they love their drug of choice. They don't, they would like to avoid the consequences associated with their drug of choice. They love their slave master and our wills are held captive to the sin that we love. We love the darkness rather than the light. And in this sense then, point three, and only in this sense, is man unable to come to faith in Christ. Natural man is unable to come to faith in Christ. Now, there are numerous passages in the Bible that say this, but I wanted to give you this sort of preemptive walkthrough because people can hear that and think, so God is stopping people? No, people are stopping people. What they love is stopping people. I'd say their freedom is what is stopping people. Because they get to do what they want, they will do what they want, and what they want is darkness. Again, don't take my word for it. Let me read you some of these passages. Turn to Romans 8. We'll end up there. But in Luke 8.10, Jesus explains why he speaks in parables. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. John 6.44, clear as day, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's not that God's stopping anyone from coming to him. They can't come because they can't want to come because they can't stop loving darkness rather than the light. Because I'm not free to suddenly love sauerkraut. Not able to. Or a little later in John 12, where John quotes that same Isaiah passage. Remember, when we studied Luke 8, we saw that Jesus was quoting Isaiah 6. Listen to this shocking statement in John 12. This is a summary of Jesus' public ministry in John 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. We talked about how you, you, you will not believe long enough, and you cannot believe. So you see, we're blind and we're deaf, but the biblical record is we are the people who have gouged out our eyes. We are the people who have stopped up our ears. Far from an excuse that we can offer before God, it becomes the high point of our guilt. These people so much hate the light, so want to run from the light, they have blinded themselves. They have stopped their ears. And giving ourselves to our master, we are now slaves to the one to whom we serve. That's the biblical record. Our inability is not some escape hatch of culpability. It is the peak and pinnacle of our culpability. 
That, that's how the Bible approaches it. The God who is pursuing man and the men are so wicked and the men want nothing to do with him and they run and they hide in the corner that eventually they, they blind themselves and deafen themselves. And that is the state God has to deal with them in. And you see, that paints a very different picture of a long-suffering God and a wicked and corrupt people. We've got to start there. We're 1 Corinthians. I'll go to 1 Corinthians 12, 2, 14. Another clear statement of inability. So when we talk about man is unable, you've got to deal with these texts. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He is not able to understand them. Natural person cannot understand things of the Spirit of God. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. We're ending up in Romans 8. Look at verse 7 and 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Can we say that natural man cannot want to come to Christ? We've got plenty of biblical text to back that up. This is not some invention of John Calvin or Augustine or the Reformers. These are clear biblical statements. And I'm telling you, it's not a capricious God who stopped them, and that's why they can't. You read your Bible, you synthesize this, you realize they can't because they don't want to, and no part of them wants to. And so because they are free, because they can do as they please, they will always choose what they desire, and what they desire is darkness rather than light. Cannot. Now, I'll just pause and make one more statement. In case you're wrestling with the notion that if, if you can't come to the light, then how are you free? Let me, let me ask you this. As you understand what it will be like in heaven and in eternity, will you be able to sin? Is there any danger that, say, two trillion years into eternity, you may decide to rebel against the Lord, raise your fist at Him, curse Him? No, of course not. Oh, will you not be free? If I can say you can't sin in the eternal state, you will never sin, you cannot sin in the eternal state, does that somehow make you a robot? An automaton, a puppet? No, why not? Because you will be so purified in the eternal state that there will be no part of you that has any desire to sin against God. So there will be no place within you from which that desire can spring up. And therefore, we can say with certainty, we will not sin in, in heaven. And yet, we will not be robots and puppets. I'm arguing the exact same thing polarized here. Because there is no unaffected area by sin, because there is no held out area, because we are born dead in our sins, not dying, from where does the desire for light and Christ arise? From what good part of man So that's the state of man. And only establishing this biblical picture, I think, can we now make sense of God's free and sovereign grace in election. God's free and sovereign grace in election. So let's turn the corner. Now before we move forward, I want to make some points clearly, absolutely. First is this. God truly desires and invites all men to be saved. Truly invites all men to be saved. 
Great Commission in Luke chapter 24. And he said these things to them. These are the words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you and that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Or probably even more clearly and personally, Paul, as he describes his ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, says this, All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. God is imploring men and women every time his ministers, his people faithfully speak his gospel message. God says he is imploring humanity to be reconciled. That's what it says. I firmly believe that. God truly desires and invites all men to be saved. The gospel offers be made to all. To put it another way, no one who comes to Christ will be turned away. Jesus is emphatic on this point as well. John 6, 37. All that the Father give me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus will never turn away anyone who comes to him in faith. Anyone who wants Jesus can have him. Anyone who looks to Christ for salvation will be saved. No exceptions, no qualifications. Absolute promised declaration of God. Okay? Let's lay that foundation clearly. Point B. God has freely and graciously chose to save some. God has freely and graciously chosen to save some. Here's the deal. God invites and pleads and appeals to all men to come to him, all men to repent and turn. And universally, they stick their fingers in their ears. Universally, they cover their eyes with their hands. And they won't come. Well, at this point, God, I suppose, would have three options. He could leave them as they be. And, and understand, we, we so get accustomed to grace. We demand it. Understand, God didn't need to provide a means of salvation in the first place, right? God would be totally, perfectly just in condemning every single person who ever lived to hell. Period, full stop, end of story. He doesn't. He's patient. He gives us years, and he sends his son. And, and he then, amazingly, he invites everyone, and he sends his prophets and his people out into the world, and he calls on men and women to come to him, and they don't come. And at that point, he'd be completely and perfectly just to condemn everyone to hell. Now, at this point, he's got three options. He could just be done. These people are so corrupt. These people are so warped and twisted. They, they prefer darkness to light. He could save everyone. He could just choose everyone. Or he could choose to save some. And what the Scripture tells us is God has chosen, in spite of all of this, he will, in fact, save some. Now, you say at this point... Pastor Jeremy, haven't you just contradicted yourself? You just insisted God desires to save everyone, but he didn't choose 
ultimately to save everyone. I say, yeah, that, that's what I think the Bible says. And I don't think that's a contradiction in terms. We, we understand this, that we can have competing desires within us. I've talked about how I, I want to be thin and I want to eat dessert. And the fact that clearly I've chosen to eat dessert on a couple of occasions doesn't mean it's not true. Now, you shouldn't be laughing that much. <laughs> doesn't mean it's not true that I do want to be thin. And, and I think this dilemma exists just as much for the other point of view, for the Arminian point of view, the free, you know, the, the libertarian free will view. Because I'll ask my friend, I'm talking to a friend of mine on the phone, Paul, great brother, love him, reconnected with him after getting to know him at Camp Good News. And he's wrestling through this, and he's definitely seen him coming at it from the other sort of side, very open, we're talking the Bible, good discussion, good times, a blessing. And, and he's talking about how it seems disingenuous when God says he desires everyone to be saved, but he doesn't, you're saying, Jeremy, he doesn't choose ultimately to save everyone. And I say, well, the, the, the other view's got the same problem. You ask anybody who believes in free will, could God, is God capable, does he have the power to save everyone if he wanted to? Tell me he can't. Tell me he's impotent. Oh, well, well he, he can't make people love him. He could still forgive them, though, couldn't he? I mean, he could just send Jesus to die on the cross and then just credit that to everyone without demanding faith, right? He could do that. If God wanted to, he could do that, yes? He's free to do that. So God could save everyone. He didn't. Both parties have to deal with that tension. God is capable of saving everyone. God has not saved everyone. Now, to that, the, the person on the other side would say, well, because God rather wants a free, loving choice. I say, okay. So you're telling me that God would rather have people burn in hell for eternity than, than in any way you know, compromise that free choice. I'm telling you, if my kid's playing in the middle of the street and a semi-truck is bearing down on them and I call them and they choose to ignore me, I'm not going to respect that choice. I'm going to run, and I'm going to grab them and yank them out of the street. So I would submit my answer would be, why, why does God not choose everyone? Because there are aspects of his character and his nature that God chooses to put on display. This is the answer Paul gives in Romans 9. We're going to end up in Romans 9. Not, not yet. Don't turn there yet. <laughs> Many miles before we sleep. But we'll get there. Um, and that Paul says that, I mean, think about this. If God were to save everyone, how would we know that God is righteous and just? How would we know that God hates sin? How would we know all these aspects of God's character? No, God, rather than save, he wants to save everyone. He invites everyone to be saved. That's true. Paul's answer in Romans is what he wants even more than that, is to fully display his glory. And so he is free to extend grace to some, not to others. This is the hard lesson we get from the parable of the vineyard owner. Remember, the vineyard owner hires workers, and he hires the workers at the first hour of the day, and they work the full day, and they agree upon a price, and every two hours he goes and he hires more, and he hires more, and he hires more, and there are some guys who literally only worked an hour. And when it comes time to get paid, he pays them in reverse order, and the guys who'd worked the shortest one hour get a full day's wage. And the people who'd worked the full day thought, man, if he's paying the guys who worked one hour a full day's wage, what's he going to pay us? Well, when it's time for them to get paid, he just gives them the full day's wage, and they grumble. 
The vineyard owner says, why is, literally, why is your eye evil because I am gracious? I've, I've done no wrong to you. If I want to be gracious to these people, what is that to you? But we live in a, in a world that demands fairness. Not justice, fairness. Fairness is equity. Everyone gets treated the same. Understand that God never claims to be fair. He claims to be just and righteous. Let's, let's back this up biblically. Don't take my word for this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Before creation, God elected, which is a way of saying appointed or chose, to save some. We're going to read one sentence in Greek. Paul can write 14 verse sentences. And I want you to look at every member of the Trinity at work. And I want you to notice who is the actor and who is acted upon. Who is doing things and to whom are things being done. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There it is. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. See, I told you these are biblical terms. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. See, rather than grumbling and saying, why doesn't God treat everyone the same. The Bible tells us, be amazed that God chose to go this far out for you. Be amazed that he chose to choose some in light of our corruption. Let your jaw drop at the lavish grace and kindness of God. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Get that? His will, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of all times to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Last week was one big message unpacking verse 11. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I, I just don't know how you can read a passage like that and think, what that says is I chose God. It's not, this, I know this is a hard topic, and what's hard about this is not the clarity of the text. What's hard about this is just wrapping our heads around how big, how great God is, and how free He is. You can't read this, and without doing backflips, think this means somehow, no, actually, I chose Him. According to His will, His purpose, predestined, chose before the ages began. You can't do it. Back, back, back to Romans chapter 8. So before creation, God elected to save some, God elected some to save. Romans 8, 28, well-known passage. We're going to have to move here. 828, 
we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Understand this. God takes credit for every aspect of our salvation. He takes credit for all of it. He predestined. He foreknew. He called. He justified. He glorified. Start to finish. God takes credit for it. It's his. It's his. God is sovereign over every part of us. We saw the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. We're all three members of the Trinity at work doing things to us. Doing things to us. Point two. God's free choice is the foundational cause of our free choice. God's free choice is the foundational cause of our free choice. So let me, don't, don't misunderstand me. You, if you are in Christ today, you truly, freely, under no compulsion, under no arm twisting, have chosen to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have turned to him. You, you did that. But ultimately, the reason you did that is founded upon God's choice of you. Because remember, they don't cancel each other out. That's why Paul can say, turn to Romans 11, 11, 5, speaking of the Jews, so too there is a remnant at the present time chosen by grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel feigned to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. And so Paul can speak of salvation. The Bible can speak both ways, of people turning and believing. And the Bible can also speak of those God chose or saved. Listen to Acts 13.48. I mean, the New Testament is rather bold and clear and unapologetic in the way it speaks to these things. Listen to this. Imagine going to an evangelistic rally, a Billy Graham crusade or something. What happened? How many people were saved? How many people made decisions for the Lord? Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I, I don't think I'm like, you know, I don't think I'm extrapolating too far when I say I think this means what it says. Now, that does not eliminate also saying, and as many people who wanted Jesus Christ turned to him and were saved. So remember last week, the two don't rule each other out. So the Bible can speak of salvation from the human perspective of people turning and trusting in the Lord. And it can say, those who God elected, appointed to eternal life, believed. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Right, Linda? Amen. <laughs> the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, she's ultimately going to come to faith, but as you read that text, only after the Lord did a work in her heart. God's free choice is the foundational cause of our free choice, or probably most famously, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Your faith is ultimately not your own doing. 
It's the gift of God. You did believe. You did. You have. It didn't well up from that one good, uncorrupted corner of your heart. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. Point three. Understand this. God's choice and not our own is the basis of our security and salvation. You, you, you treasure the doctrine that you can't be lost. You treasure the doctrine that you cannot lose your salvation. That only makes sense if you believe in the sovereignty of God over salvation. There's a reason why traditionally the Arminian camp believes you can lose your salvation and the Calvinistic Reformed camp believes you can't. Because if ultimately, at the end of the day, you follow the cord all the way back to the wall, your salvation is your decision, and your decision is foundational, and your decision is prime, then what happens if you change your mind? I think God must be equally bound to respect that new decision, wouldn't he? No, but we sing, we sang this morning, he will hold me fast. Not I will hold me fast. He has laid hold of me. Go on in Romans 8. This is precisely where Paul goes after bringing up God's election and foreknowledge, right? So we see in verses 28 through 30, he gives us this golden chain. Notice, by the way, that once you get on this train, you don't get off, and people don't get added on partway through. It's not as though here Paul is viewing God calling everyone, because those he called, those he predestined, those he foreknew, sorry, those he foreknew, he predestined. Verse 30, those who he predestined, he called, And the same exact group, one for one, those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So having just laid out the sovereignty of God, now Paul says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him to us freely. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's, what? Elect. God's chosen. That's the basis of why we, near not, we do not need to fear the accuser. God, God chose us. And if God chose us and God did all this, are we going to slip out of his hands? No. Who shall separate us, verse 35, from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded the sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you love and treasure that truth, it is built upon the truth of verses 28 to 30. You treasure your security. Understand, it's in Paul's argument, the the outflow. The fact that God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified you. Now, I can imagine one final objection, one final attempt to get out of this. We'll go over a minute or two, but we need to cover this. And that is this. Ah, ah, but Jeremy, verse 29, he foreknew. Isn't it possible that God looks down the quarter of time because God doesn't relate to time the way we do and he can see all of time and he sees and he knows who will respond to him. And then he then chooses those people. And so all of this talk about predestining and all this talk of choice is really God's response to him knowing who's going to choose him. To which the first thing I say is, that has a really odd definition of choose. 
God chose me. What do you mean he chose you? Well, he knew that I'd choose him. That, that's kind of the backwards of, okay. But let's just work with that for a moment. Let's just work with that possibility for a moment, because this is the escape hatch. This is where people who wrestle with this, and it's good to wrestle with this. It is right to wrestle with this. Take your time, work through this. But Paul will demolish that argument a chapter later. You see, he ends Romans 8 with these wonderful promises, and he anticipates in another different objection. Here's the objection Paul anticipates when he starts Romans 9. Paul, that sounds wonderful. Didn't God make some awfully similar promises to Israel and look at them now? If God can make similar promises to Israel and look at them now, how do I know that I won't end up like Israel, cut off from the vine, set aside? And so Paul speaks initially in chapter 9 of his heartfelt longing and burden for his people, but everything he brings out, and he brings out some big guns of sovereignty and predestination, is to back up verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And so our, our final point two here, what we're moving into is this. God's choice is not based on anything foreseen in us. God's choice is not based on anything foreseen in us. So he's got to deal with the dilemma of the Jews and the current state of Israel. Now, ultimately, he will insist there is still a remnant of believing Israel, but absolutely, by and large, national Israel has killed, rejected, crucified their Messiah. And God has judged them, and God has set them aside for a time. So how do I know he won't do that to me? It's not as though God's word has failed. Now, follow Paul's argument. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What he's ultimately going to argue, and we don't have time to go through all of this through Romans 9, 10, 11, is this. God promised Abraham descendants and a people, but in the first two generations, he made it clear, this one, not that one. He made it clear, I don't mean every one of your descendants, Abraham. So Abraham has a son named Ishmael. Was he the son of promise? No. Did he receive the covenant blessing? No. Isaac. And that's, that's his argument. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. And then he moves to the second example, and this is the one that is devastating for the foreknowledge argument. What does the promise say? About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah, Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. What's, what's being excluded from consideration? What they're going to do. Will Isaac choose God? Will Esau choose God? That's not factored in. Why? Pits it positively. In order, so that... God's purpose of election might continue, stand, be established is a better translation. Not because of works, but because he who calls, it is written, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. Jacob was chosen unconditionally. Many people talk about unconditional election, that's what they mean. Apart from anything he had done. Apart from anything he had done. And then Paul goes on to say, God did this purposefully. It was not by accident. He wanted to make it clear that he chooses. He wanted to make it clear his priority of choice. 
He did this intentionally to put on display, hey, at the end of the day, I'm ultimately the one who chooses. It's hard stuff. But as Paul goes on, we're going to see one final point. Just bear with me another minute longer. God's freedom and election is central to his goodness and glory. And we looked at the passage on Pharaoh last week. I want to make a different observation. Okay? He goes on to prove this point again. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? By no means. So he's just told us, hey, he chose one son, not the other, and he did it not based on anything he saw they'd do. That's not fair. Yes, but that, fair enough. That's not fair. But that's not unjust. And then he quotes Exodus 34. T- turn to Exodus 34. We're going to end up here. I'm going to finish reading this passage in Romans, and we'll go to Exodus 34, and we'll be done. For he says to Moses, I mean 33, Exodus 33, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, which is to say, I am free to bestow my grace on whomever I choose. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, God who has mercy. So, so there's the answer to your question. Ultimately, does my salvation depend on my will and my choice? No. Does not depend on that, ultimately. But on God who has mercy. The scripture says of Pharaoh, for this very reason I have raised you up, that I might show my power to you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. And you will say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? I'm going to Exodus 33, and then we're going to be done. I just want to make one observation of verse 19. Paul anticipates the exact objection that I constantly hear when people wrestle through this. You will say to me, verse 19, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Which I would argue is the single largest proof that I'm reading Paul rightly. Because of what Paul has said, and I've misunderstood somehow, is no, no, God respects your decision. He's a gentleman. He doesn't, doesn't, he just stands back and he just, you make a choice. If that's what Paul has just taught, why would anyone say in light of that? Well, if God respects my decision and God lets me make a choice and I'm, I'm able to do either one, well, then, then how does he still find fault for who resists his will? Makes no sense. Precisely because this is the exact objection we respond with, I would submit to you, we're understanding Paul rightly. Paul anticipates this. He understands what I've just taught will make you say that. So if you're saying that, you're in good company, and I think you're understanding Paul. Exodus 33, and we're done. The golden calf incident has happened. God has threatened to destroy Israel. Moses stands up and intercedes for them. The Lord relents. He shows grace. And Moses, emboldened by the success, says in verse 18, please show me your glory. The Lord said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. We're about to see is God's goodness and glory. That's why the blanks are goodness and glory. Okay? Show me your glory. He's up in the cleft of the rock. Now think about this. Pause. God, up to this point, has done very little talking about himself. Right? Moses is the first person to write scripture. Possibly Job was written first, but most likely Moses. He's revealed himself to people. He's talked to Adam. He's talked to Abraham. And he's revealed his nature and character through actions, but there's been very little exposition about who he is. Right? So that 
It's not until the burning bush that we learn his name, the Lord. This is the next event after the burning bush where God starts talking about who he is. I want you to understand just how fundamental this is to who God is. And in the context, I want to see your glory. I'm going to show you all my goodness. What does God say? The Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Get that. This, this doctrine is not some bolted on, after the fact, peripheral idea of who God is. God says, I'm the Lord of the burning bush. And the next thing he says about himself to Moses, you've got to understand this, Moses. I grace who I want to grace. I, I claim that freedom. Not only am I free to do that, that's my goodness. That's my glory. It's ironic that the very doctrine we wrestle with, that we're tempted to think makes God look ugly, make him look like a monster. In Exodus, God says, that's precisely what my goodness and my glory is. I am free. I am free to mercy whom I want to mercy. I am free with my grace. I'm, I, I, I mercy whom I want to mercy. I'm free. I'm free to do that. You've got to understand, but Ms. Moses, I, I, I am free to be gracious to this person and not to that person. Which means that if ultimately we find this ugly, if ultimately we find this repugnant, we are finding something central and close to the heart of who God is and his goodness and glory that is repugnant. It's a dangerous place to be. It is okay to be stretched. It is okay to be struggling. It is okay to be going, okay, Lord, like Habakkuk. Okay. But we dare not declare this ugly when God says, this is my goodness. This is my glory. We're going to break. We're going to end. We'll regather for a congregational meeting in about 15 minutes. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for revealing who you are in your goodness. I pray that you give us grace as we wrap our heads around these things, as we come to grips with admittedly difficult topics, difficult teaching. But Lord, your word is clear. I just pray that you'd give us the faith and the grace to, to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, give you peace. Thank you for being patient with my extra length. Amen.